Welcome to the EADV podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Sarah Walsh sits down with Professor Carl Paul, the new editor-in-chief of the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. Professor Carl Paul is full professor in the Department of Dermatology at Toulouse University in France, with a particular research interest in immune-related skin diseases, the emotional impact of skin diseases, pharmacology, and clinical drug development. In their discussion, they cover his vision for the journal, the development of critical thinking, how to best involve young contributors and engaged reviewers, and maximise the role of social media. Finally, they discuss the core mission of the journal, which is enhancing the quality of life for individuals affected by skin diseases. This insightful episode provides a glimpse into JADV's future direction under Professor Carl Paul's leadership. But first, if you haven't already, check out our updated program of courses offering high-quality theoretical and practical training on a range of specialties in locations across Europe. Applications have already opened for 2024, including courses on confocal microscopy, Mohs surgery, oncodermatology and tropical dermatology. Places do fill out fast, so subscribe to our mailing list if you'd like to be the first to receive updates of when course applications open. You can learn more at eadv.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sarah Walsh. I'm a dermatologist working in London, and it's a great privilege and a pleasure for me to host another episode of the EADV podcast. And with me today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Carl Paul, who will be no stranger to any member of the EADV, having had a very successful term um, as president of our organisation. And now, we say in English, he's a, a glutton for punishment because he has applied and been successful in that application to be the next editor-in-chief of the JEADV. So um, hello, Carl. And um, can I begin by asking, um, what, what encouraged you to apply for this job? You're obviously a very busy man and this will make you even more busy. But what, what was it attracted you to the role of being the editor-in-chief? Thank you, Sarah, for this question, which is... Um... Which is a, which is not an easy one. Um, you know, I think there are two elements. The first element is um, I've been participating to you know innovation. How can we bring innovation to our colleagues and to our patients to improve patient care? Because what we want at the end of the day is to improve the quality of care for the patients. And my feeling was that the GADV is is really the home, you know, for for innovation and for bringing the the, the, the European dermatology perspective um, to the world, and also to be the home for you know innovation from other parts of the world. So that was the first element. The second element is at the stage I am in my career. My goal is to to coach and 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 to transmit knowledge, you know, and I want to give the younger generation of colleagues uh, the willingness to participate to the journal and to participate to the dissemination of innovation. I think I think that's a really good point because I think sometimes you can look at the um, the the leadership within organisations like the EADB and other professional organisations and see um, an overrepresentation of more senior members. So I, I, I applaud the idea of bringing in more more sort of junior and mid career people into the um, into the leadership of these of these entities. And, and I have a question for you, sir. You've been appointed associate editor of the, of the GDV. What drove you to, to accept this position? 
Well, um, firstly, I really enjoy um, editorial work and I have had experience of that with another leading dermatology journal for about seven years in the past. So I guess I had a very clear understanding of what the role, well, I think I have a clear understanding of what the role involves day to day, the level of commitment, but also the rewards that you get from it. And I think one of the things about being in an editorial position is that it really, really hones your skills for critical thinking and for analysis. And I'm not sure that if I look back to when I was at medical school, which would have been 20, 25 years ago, that that skill was necessarily as developed as it should be. And I think learning on the on the job, as it were, at this other major journal was, you know, big learning curve for me, but ultimately um, a very stimulating one. I think it probably made me more questioning in how I read the literature generally. I think it probably improved the quality of my own scientific output. Um, and finally, I think the other thing is that I've always really enjoyed working as part of a team. And I think that the team dynamic that we will have, the pe the individuals that are involved in the core editorial team uh, will be very, very positive. And I, I look forward to that element as well. Me too, thank you. Yeah, and I wonder, Carl, just on that topic, do you feel that critical thinking and analysis is well taught at medical school and do you think that residents have enough opportunities to develop skills of critical thinking and analysis in their four years of training? That's a, that's a very good point. I think that things have improved, uh, at least in my country, in France, um, there, there are specific models related to um, paper analysis. Now the thing is that if students are able to critically analyze paper, are they able to raise their voice in public? I'm not entirely sure about that. How is it in the United Kingdom? So in the United Kingdom, there is a huge emphasis for residents in presenting regularly, by which I mean speaking at meetings. They usually begin with very local meetings, but they are rapidly encouraged to present at regional meetings and, you know, ultimately at national meetings. Um, and that would be considered to be um, a core competency, I would say. And certainly, when I look at residents in other specialties, other than dermatology, in the UK, I don't think those presentation skills are necessarily as well developed. So I would say in my country, one of the great strengths of the resident training is the expectation that one will be able to not only speak in public, but also to communicate ideas, clinical cases, scientific information in a concise and a clear way. And that requires great organization of thought. And I think some of that skill of being able to organize your thoughts and then present them to someone else is definitely enhanced by doing regular reviewing of papers. I think it really helps you to, to organize the way you think. Um, and so in the UK, I think probably critical appraisal has improved since my day at medical school. 
But I think that it's probably still something that residents, so post-medical school, where it's not being done strictly in an educational setting, but maybe could have more practical applications, for example, being invited to review for a journal. I don't think that our UK residents participate as fully in that as they might. And I think probably one of my objectives while I'm in the associate editor role will be that when I seek to have a paper reviewed, not only do I seek the key opinion leader in that area or somebody with considerable experience, but also to try and involve perhaps some residents as much to get their skills to be developed as to hear what their perspective is, because ultimately they are the future of the specialty. And I think their their view is valuable and needs to be needs to be heard. That's a very good point. And one, one of our common goal is to bring the younger generation closer to the journal, closer to, to publication and scientific publication. And my initial experience, you know, giving papers to review to younger colleagues, you know, assistant professor or people aspiring to become assistant professor is that the quality of the review they deliver is excellent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, they pay, they take time over it, generally speaking. They take more time over it. I think the other thing that involving younger people in the journal is that I think that social media is going to be an absolutely critical part going forward of dissemination of knowledge. It already is a critical part of dissemination of knowledge. And I think probably the scientific publishing industry is a little bit behind the curve in fully exploiting the power of social media. And, uh, you know, I, I guess as a team, we are going to have to develop a strategy for that um, how to how to use it most effectively. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that, about the role of social media and the journal? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very important point that you that you are making here. And there are two components. The first component is how is knowledge disseminated and received and, and what we've seen in the past 10 years is that there is a considerable shift in the way the people get the information get the knowledge with a prominent role of social media that's the first point so most of the younger generation 90 percent of the information they receive from the outside world comes from social media and we have to we have to live with it the second point is uh when I see a paper, um, I ask myself some question. Is it new information first? And then how much does this information impact the way I understand the disease, the way I understand medicine, the way I understand my patient, and the way I understand clinical care? And the next question is how much will this paper uh, improve or change my practice? And the challenge is, how can I communicate this information in a picture or in a few bulleted statements? Because for most people nowadays, our focused attention is highly limited, you know. Um, our focused attention is a few seconds. So the challenge for us will be how, when we have an important papers, and I hope we will publish only important papers, how can we extract, you know, the two or three sentences that will make impact, that will translate the knowledge and give the people who read that the envy to come 
and see the paper and write the full paper. That's a critical point, I think, we will have to so to the the um to create the incentive to to actually sit down and engage with the material yeah i think i think that is important and i think we'll probably need to devote certainly i will need to devote some time to developing the skills to exploit that uh that approach because i wouldn't say that it necessarily comes naturally because i think scientific writers clinician scientists like to include all of the detail in their paper and they find editing a, a, a very challenging process, a very, very challenging, but the reductionist approach can be very difficult for them. And um, moving on, just to talk, we spoke briefly there about reviewers. And I know from my own experience as, as you do that getting reviewers, engaging reviewers nowadays is one of the biggest challenges of producing a journal successfully. And we have spoken in our meetings about how to potentially incentivize that process. Do, do you have any, what, what are the sorts of ideas that you have as to how we can better engage our reviewers? Well, I think uh, that uh, there is a reviewer fatigue in the, in the publishing industry, no doubt about that. Um, I think the first idea is to have a large team, you know, a large team of people working with, with a common goal. Um, we want to support clinicians delivering better care. We want to improve patient outcome. And, and, and we want to improve the way People can live with skin disease, and as, as you know, because you've been part of the of the last issue of the GEDV in October, we we we, we published the results of the Burden of Skin Disease pro project, which we which we worked on together. And clearly, skin diseases do impact people's life. So, how do you, can you engage reviewers? I think you have to give them meaning, and and as you said, uh, I review papers because it improves my clinical skills, it improves my critical thinking, it improves the way I can, you know, summarize knowledge in, in, in few sentences. And, and, and this is something that, that, that has an effect on how I will deliver care uh, with patients. So we really have to find a pool of reviewers uh, with people from all generations all part of the world and find the people who are motivated to go through this adventure with us. Because most of the motivation we have comes from intrinsic motivation. I, I'm not a strong believer in extrinsic motivation, you know, giving money or, 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 or presents and so on. So we probably have to um, help reviewer understanding how much value it has for them to uh, to review for the GADV and to be part of the project of the GADV, changing, you know, the GADV scope, giving broader focus to the GADV and maintain their interest. And that's, that's what I'm, what I'm aiming to do with a, with a complete editorial team, including yourself, the associate editor, the section editors and the new editorial board. Mm -hmm. I mean, from from my perspective, I think, well, a couple of things. First of all, I try to be highly, highly selective about what I send people to review. So I think, you know, you've got to filter out the stuff that you 
your inclination is that this is never going to reach the finish line anyway. And so in that way, re reviewers that you use more regularly will come to trust you because they know that you will only send them stuff that has a viable chance of being published in a publication such as the EADV with that impact factor. The second thing is, I always like the process between the reviewer and the editor to, I try to make it more like a dialogue. So it, when I write to them, I'll say, look, this is this paper. This is why I thought it was interesting, but I'd be interested in what you think so that they feel that it's, uh, because that having been on the receiving end of it, if you're a reviewer and you get sent that automatic, please review this paper, and then you send in your review and there's really just the generic email back saying thank you. It can feel a little bit like uh, quite an isolating process. And so I think as the editorial team, we should try to make our interactions with the reviewers feel more like dialogue because people, if they feel the sense of belonging to a broader team, their engagement will be, will be stronger. And I, I think that is a that is that is an approach that has has worked for me in the past where i take the time to articulate what i think about the paper to the reviewer not in a way that will influence them but just to say this is why i'm asking you particularly i didn't just select you you know at random from a list i selected you because you have expertise in this area or you have an interest in this particular disease and I'm particularly interested to know what you think so that they feel, as I say, that it's more of a, a, a two way process. And I think the other thing is that our, you know, our, our annual meetings, so our Congress and our symposium, the ADV, we're lucky because they afford us a, a forum, an opportunity to actually engage face to face with some of our reviewers. And I think that would be something that I'd be quite keen to do is to perhaps hold, um, you know, just small gatherings, just, you know, 30 minutes where reviewers could come to a particular part of the Congress Centre or Symposium Centre and interact with the editorial team to give their views and feedback. And I guess an opportunity for us to express our gratitude for everything that they have done, again, in the effort to kind of build the, build the team. Do you think that would be something that would be achievable or appropriate? Yeah, I, I think you, you are making excellent points, Sarah. And um, uh, first of all, um, as you said, to build a network. And, and there is a journal network that involves not only the editors, not only the editorial board, but also the reviewers and also the younger generation of people who are currently not, you know, in the, in, in the review process. And as you said, it, it, it's a teamwork. It's a network. We share values. We share... Uh, momentum for the journal, and this is something we, we, we will build in the next years. And, and then what you said regarding selection of manuscript, I fully agree, we have to be selective because we, we have to uh, be fair to the authors. If we believe the papers will not make it to the finish line, we have to be fair and to say them right from the beginning, that's not going to be possible. You know, We have to sometimes to deliver maybe more bad news. And then, of course, during annual congress and symposium, we have to dedicate time to meet with the reviewers, uh, present maybe the, the journal achievements, and 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 have a, have a better dialogue with, with the reviewers. That's that's these are great ideas. Thank you.
And the, the last topic I wanted to touch on before we finish is uh, guidelines, um, because I think guidelines and position statements are a really they're a huge, they're a cornerstone really of most of the major journals um impact factories nowadays and i feel that the jadv we we could probably we have you know obviously some published some really important guidelines and our task forces have been fantastic in providing those but one concept i'm very interested in which is increasingly being spoken about is the concept of living guidelines so that a guideline is not a static thing. And we all know the feeling of seeing a published paper and the time it has taken them to get through the publication cycle, the information is almost out of date by the time it gets to the page. And the living guideline is an opportunity for us to add to and evolve a guideline in real time as developments come. Do you Would you see that as a potential aspiration for the JEADV, perhaps to work more with guidelines and even to develop the concept of a living guideline? I agree. This is this is of primary importance. Uh, as you said, you know, the, the knowledge is, is, is running very, very fast. And if you want to maintain, you know, uh, up-to-date information, you have to work on, on these living guideline concepts. Um, as you know, the EDB is a very large organization with more than 9,000 members. Uh, the reach of the organization is, is, is even bigger with a Congress, uh, which uh, has about 15 to 16,000 people, a symposium. We have more than 40 task forces on different fields of medicine. So we need to capitalize from this base uh, to improve further the quality of the journal, improve the quality of the guidelines, the dissemination of the guidelines, and work on summaries of the guidelines that can be, you know, communicated to, to people, to doctors, but also to patients. And uh, I'd like to involve more patients, you know, also in the journal. There will be patients in the editorial board. There are two patients have accepted to, to be part of the editorial board. And uh, we really need to work on improving the, the quality of the guidelines and position paper, the dissemination, and also the concept of living guidelines to, to be able to, to make them more usable in, in everyday clinic. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's, as I say, it is a, a concept that is useful. And certainly my first exposure to it was the uh, during the COVID, during the pandemic, uh, the British Medical Journal started to publish a living guideline on the treatments for COVID, which were obviously developing a pace. But I think it it certainly requires a certain amount of um, it requires a lot of support from the journal to maintain a living guideline. And I guess the resources for that would would need to be allocated. So it's not without its uh, challenges. And and so. Carl, I think we're probably coming to the end of the podcast. I suppose I'm, my final question to you is, um, if I ask you what you would like to achieve in the first year of the journal, what would that one thing be? Yeah, I think at first the first thing is to bring the team together, the SSC editors, the section editors, and, uh, and also the editorial board. Uh, we have elaborated a strategy that will be presented to the, to the EADV board uh, in two weeks' time. And um, I really want to make the journal closer to the members, you know, um, giving people the opportunity to 
to write editorials, um, commentaries about the scientific papers, and also to address, you know, the, the social and ethical issue we face in our everyday work, you know, like, for example, you know, quality of care, access to care, discrimination. Um, in some countries, we have difficulties for some patients to get access to certain medicine, you know. How, how can we address these points which are so important for clinical care? So I want the journal maybe to be closer also to the society in which we are living. So dovetailing with some of the advocacy work that the EADV has been doing, which you know is a nice a nice fit. And um, Carl, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak to me today. I'm very very excited both to be working with you and the rest of the team, and also for the future of the the journal in the next uh, in the next three to five years. So thank you very much, and uh, goodbye to all our audience, and see you again soon on the EADV podcast. Thank you, Sarah. It was a great interview. Thank you. Before you go, a quick favour. If you are a regular listener to our podcast, we would love to hear from you. Your feedback will help us improve the show and develop episodes that you are interested in hearing. To participate in the short survey, simply follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for your support. It means a lot. We look forward to hearing from you. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.